Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today's episode contains subject matter that is not suitable for children. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Never again. That was the vow the international community took after the Holocaust, pledging to never repeat the kind of actions that led to the death of over six million Jewish people. Unfortunately, the horrors of genocide have been seen again in Armenia, in Rwanda, and now in China. The Uyghurs are an ethno-religious people living in a region of northwest China. They and their homeland, East Turkestan, have a rich cultural history. China's occupation of East Turkestan began in 1949. The Uyghurs have faced religious discrimination since the Chinese government took control, but in recent decades, this persecution has escalated dramatically. In 2016, the Chinese government began a mass internment of Uyghurs into concentration camps. Human rights groups have estimated between one and three million Uyghurs are currently being detained. Within those camps, Uyghurs are subjected to physical and mental torture, and many women there have reported being sexually assaulted and forcibly sterilized. Uyghurs who are outside the camps are constantly surveilled, even within their homes, and expressions of their religion or culture are, as you'll hear, a serious liability. Genocide is defined as acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. In 2021, the U.S. government determined that the mass killing and sterilization of Uyghurs clearly met the U.N. Genocide Convention's criteria for genocide. The U.K., Canada, and the Netherlands publicly agreed. But the U.N. itself and other global powers still refuse to officially declare the oppression of Uyghurs a genocide. China responds to the allegations of crimes against humanity by saying that their camps are for re-education and anti-terrorism purposes. Much of the international community is still unaware, or even worse, indifferent to the struggles of the Uyghur people, so today we'll be shedding light on what life is like for Uyghurs inside the camps. We were just treated like a group of animals, just the experimental laboratory objects. And you'll hear what it's like if you're lucky enough to escape. He just said, we'll come to America. And then soon he said it and gave back my passport. I was crying. That was Zumrat Dawood, a Uyghur woman whose story of escaping the concentration camps, published and illustrated by a team at Insider Magazine, won the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for illustrated reporting and commentary. We'll also be talking with Uyghur filmmaker and writer Tahir Izgil about processing the trauma of genocide through poetry. But first, we're joined by members of the advocacy group Uyghur Human Rights Project. Here's their government relations manager, Julie Millsap, on why her organization thinks the Chinese government is carrying out this genocide. I think there are a couple things. So in general, um, the Chinese Communist Party is quite nervous about anything that might cause dissent against the party. And so in that regard, it's not actually just the Uyghurs. Um, Chinese people themselves are subject to a lot of that in China, but anything that would cause somebody 
to have an allegiance to anything outside of party leaders and Xi Jinping is threatening. Um, therefore, the Uyghurs, because they have such a distinct culture, um, a distinct history, um, it's threatening. <laughs> it's it's something that can't be defined by the Chinese communist leadership. It's something that you can't really contain people's allegiance or loyalty when they have that type of strong identity um, and community sense. So that's one thing. Another piece of it does have to do with geopolitics. Uh, the Uyghur homeland, which is referred to um, in China as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, uh, Uyghurs prefer to call it East Turkestan, which is the literal translation from Uyghur and the historic name. Xinjiang in Chinese, if anyone doesn't know, translates to new territory. And so the name is not really accurate uh, and a little bit insulting actually to Uyghurs who've been there uh, forever. It's um, the geopolitical location. It's rich in natural resources. It's something that China needs to maintain control over. And uh, it's the starting point for the Belt and Road Initiative. And so this new Silk Road that's effectively used in my my viewpoint as a, a form of neocolonialism, it all starts there in the Uyghur homeland. And so you have a twofold thing going on you have this ethnic identity that the state views as threatening. You also have the geopolitical realities which China wishes to maintain control over. Now meet the executive director of the Uyghur Human Rights Project, Omar Kanat, talking about the international response to the genocide. Of course, we would like to see coordinated international reaction to this, you know, Chinese, what the Chinese government has been doing to the Uyghurs. This repression, yeah, this you know, genocidal policy, but uh, I can say the international community failed to stop this genocide. You know, the Chinese government wanted actually to hide this quietly, assimilate all the Uyghurs and eliminate their culture, their language, everything. But because of the scale and scope of this repression, Chinese government couldn't hide this. It came out, exposed, and uh, everybody talk about that. So, so many of the people in the world knows uh, know what's happening in the region. So they cannot say that, oh, we didn't know. So because international human rights organizations like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, they release reports and say that, you know, what the Chinese government has been doing is a crimes against humanity. What's going on is a crimes against humanity. A very independent Uyghur tribunal in London, they uh, made a judgment after you know reviewing 100,000 pages of documents, evidences, and after reviewing 500 witness testimonies, after hearing more than 30 survivors of the camp, they made a judgment in December 2021 that what the Chinese government's uh, treatment of the Uyghurs uh, is a genocide in crimes against humanity. And now almost uh, 10 parliaments in the world also called it genocide in crimes against humanity. But there is still not a very effective international coordination to uh, push pressure on China to stop this genocide. What would that look like? What would the most ideal situation, global reaction to this be? It is a, a matter that should be discussed in the United Nations. 
So United Nations worked a lot. They made an investigation and finally issued this report. The report says crimes against humanity may happen. So now using that, the international community should take into account what the Chinese government, but the Chinese government is so influential. So uh, now using its economic and political power to influence other countries, to put pressure on other countries. So therefore what happened last year in October, 6th of October last year, in the United Nations uh, Human Rights Council, this was a motion to uh, review, for example, what's happening in East Turkestan. So this was rejected by uh, 19 to uh, you know 17 countries voted for the review of the situation to uh, and the, the 19 countries rejected. So this is in action of the international community uh, is a green light for Chinese government to continue its genocidal policy. Now let's meet Zumrat Dawood. When she, her three children, and her husband, Imran Muhammad, fled to the United States in 2019, she had escaped being held at one of those concentration camps where she was beaten, forced to renounce her religion, and forcibly sterilized. We start Zumrat's story, interpreted by Zubaira Shamsadin, when she was called by the Chinese police to come down to the station to be interrogated. The harshest questions that they asked from me was um, in 2016, as a family, we all got a U.S. visa. And then they questioned that, that why did you apply for U.S. visa and why you got U.S. visa? What's the purpose of getting a U.S. visa? And do you know anyone in the United States? Why would you? want to go to the United States. And they asked this question repeatedly. In reality, the, all these questions that they have asked me, it's, it's none of them is illegal or none of them is against the Chinese law or none of them can be a base of the persecution against me or they can keep me in the police station because I do have answers to all the questions that they have asked from me. But it didn't seem to protect you from what was to come. After these questions and this interrogation, you were taken to a military hospital. What did you think this was? Because we now know about these camps. But did you know about these camps? Did you know this was what you were getting into? Certainly, I know that the, the camps will exist at that time because, you know, the people in my neighborhood, my friends, the many people that I know, many were already disappeared. When that day came to me, I kind of realized that they will leave none of us. So they, they're going to get every one of us. So I kind of realized this is a day that um, it's happening to me. As long as we are Uyghurs, we should be suffering this day. So that's what I realized. It is very scary. After six months, and we start to hear that many people died, 
And they said that some of them died because of the heart problem. Some of them died because of the liver or lung problem. And even some of them has gone through surgery. The doctors done it. That was the, the, the information, the propaganda that the Chinese authorities, you know, distributing, saying that, you know, those people are died because of that reasons, you know, heart problem, lung problem, some kind of problem. But I feel and we feel kind of that they purposefully killed those people. You know, the most of the people who died was they have no one to trace them. They have no one like kind of orphans or people who are alone. And from this, I kind of think that they may have been killed on purposefully, or maybe their organs harvested and sold. That kind of things could happen to them. Um, when I was taken to the hospital, and when they did all the examination, like in a blood type, my liver condition, lung condition, everything, we were just treated like a group of animals, just the experimental laboratory objects. They can just uh, classify everything, do all the examination, just make us ready to take out our organs for uh, that kind of purposes, you know, organ harvesting purposes. That's how I felt. That's how I thought when all the examination done to me at the military hospital. When you were there in captivity, you were with 30 other women. They cut your hair. Uh, they wouldn't let you share food. There was a woman with, who was ill and you tried to share your food. You were beaten. They were also trying to indoctrinate you with messages about your religion. Will you talk about that? The moment, the woman that I have mentioned, she was an elderly lady and she had diabetic. Her body was kind of shaky she was telling me that um, because of hunger and not enough food, even some people who are supposed to be getting insulin, but they are unable because it's not provided in there. And at the time, I didn't know that, you know, sharing food with some other captors or detainees are illegal. So that's why seeing her, that kind of shaky condition, and I have shared my um, the small the Chinese bun with her. And because of that, they have severely beat me. At the time, they beat me with kind of plastic stick, and it was so severe, and it was just very horrific. And then because of pain, I screamed at God. And because of I screamed at God, and then they said, oh, if you have a God, okay, call you God. Tell you God to save you. You know, they beat me even more severe and that they got just outraged because of I called God. There was a story of a young girl who was taken in the middle of the night in this camp and that she attempted suicide the next day. Do you know what happened to that girl? When she was taken, uh, they said that they're going to question her for interrogation. But after three, four hours, she was brought back. But when she came in, she, her condition was very bad, and she was trying to bite her arms and try to just destroy herself. What I can see how she looked was she definitely faced some kind of severe abuse. I don't know whether it's a rape or they have beaten her severely. I'm not sure exactly what has happened to her. 
but the, the detainees express the abuse that they have faced that kind of way, you know, either because, and even if you want to kill yourself, it's just impossible because there is no means to kill yourself that other than just to bite yourself or do kind of stranger things and horrific things. In later interrogations, they would test your faith and ask you whether Allah or God existed. And you would say yes, knowing that they would beat you. Why did you resist and hold on to your faith? You know, because at the time I felt that if I say there is no God or there is no Allah, I kind of feel, felt that I am giving up myself. I'm giving up my faith. So that's how I felt. And that's that's why I said yes at the beginning. But later, because of the punishment, because of the severe beating, and other cellmates told me that, you know, I mean, God is in our heart. So in order to avoid that severe punishment and beating, and we should say, no, there is no God. So I began to say, there is no God. You're going through something excruciating, unfair, unpredictable, cruel. Your husband, in the meantime, is trying to find you. What kept you going through all this? Number one, I truly believe it in my husband. I knew that he would save me. And luckily, my husband is a foreigner, and that's why I was able to be saved. But not everybody is lucky as my as myself, because there are so many Uyghurs still detained and still no news about them. And I was just one of the lucky. Maybe God has some plan on me. That's why I was saved and I'm here. So I think um, the sacrifice that we do is to save more people or be the voice of more who are unable to speak for themselves or save themselves. You finally left for the United States after becoming being forced to be sterilized. Will you talk about what happened? You know, authority was kind of forcing me and said that I have to do sterilization. If I don't, they said they're going to kick my husband out from the country and they will separate me from my husband. But I was really scared. So that's why I had to do it. I had no choice. And this was kind of the most painful thing for my family. When I have done, the day that I was sterilized, both my husband and myself felt like, you know, um, it was kind of death day. You know, we, we, we killed and it's just killing something. And I lost something. It's something really important for a woman. And I had the dreams too, and I have three children, but I really wanted to have another son. So I could have two girls and the two boys kind of dreams, but it didn't happen. After the sterilization and all the conditions, given all the conditions that is right now in my homeland, I kind of felt that you know it's impossible for me to stay any longer because there is no security, no guarantee for our lives. Any day, any time I could be arrested again and put in the detention camps. So I begged my husband, you know, I think we do have ch chance to be out from this place. So even if I live in a village in Pakistan, I want to be out. 
because we don't have any future or any hope in here. So that's why we decide to leave. At the same time, you know, why why deciding that we're gonna leave from the country? And both my husband and my myself already had in our mind that we should um, let world know what's happening in this place, what's happening to my people. So we collected as uh, much documents as possible to tell the world what's happening to our people and our country with proofs, with evidence. And we, we had kind of hope that one day we're going to tell the whole thing to the international stage and let the world know what's happening there. If I don't speak up, my people will disappear. And I feel that it's my duty and it's my obligation that I should speak out about the atrocities that are taking place in my homeland. That was Zumrat Dawood, interpreted by Zubaira Shamsadan. When we get back, one of many reactions Zumrat had when she came to the United States. I came from a country that we uh, became a suspicious person all our lives. So that's why when I came to America, I felt like I'm really kind of human. Plus poet and filmmaker Tahir Isgil on how he had to amend his art to stay safe before fleeing to the United States. I had no choice but to uh, change various uh, words and phrases in poems that had already been published. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. We're meeting two Uyghur refugees who are living in America after fleeing the violence in their homeland in northwest China, which they know as East Turkestan. Ever since 2016, when the Chinese government began a mass internment of Uyghurs into concentration camps, between one to three million people are estimated to have been separated from their families. Some of them have been sterilized, forced to renounce their religious faith, assaulted, and killed. In a little bit, you'll meet a celebrated Uyghur poet and filmmaker and hear his story of survival. But let's get back to our conversation with Zumrat Dawood through interpreter Zubaira Shamsadin. Zumrat fled to the United States in 2019 after being held, beaten, and forcibly sterilized at one of those concentration camps. You came to America in early 2019. Will you talk about 
what your interaction with customs in the United States was like. I came towards a border official and I hand up my passport and he looked at my passport and looking at it and said, oh, you're Uyghur. And uh, the, the official looked at my passport and also looked at my children and said, oh, these are your children. And But I can see from his face that kind of sympathizing, caring, it's very um, warm. And I felt very emotional at the time. He just looked at me and I can kind of sense that he's saying that lucky, you are lucky that you were saved. You're lucky that you are able to come here. That kind of message that I read from his face. But in my mind, I was thinking that I may will be taken to the, another room. But in reality, it didn't happen. He just said, we'll come to America. And then soon he said it and gave back my passport. I was crying. And also he said that just to don't cry. And then you are safe. You are safe. You are in peace in here. And when he said that, and I got even more emotional. I came from a country that the, the, we uh, became a suspicious person all our lives. And we've been judged and we looked at down all the time. So that's why when I came to America, I felt like I'm really kind of human. You know, I can see all the warmth that everyone is very welcoming. Everyone is very warm and they say, they say hello to you. You can feel that warm face and um, love, inclusiveness, respect, and caring. And that's life that I have seen in America. How do you take care of yourself? What kind of things do you keep at the forefront of your mind? I am never going to stop to fight more for my people because that's the promise that I have given to myself. But unfortunately, the counterattack on me is um, because of my activism. When I was going to go to the United Nations in New York to testify, at the time, my family members contacted me and told me to stop it. But I still did go to the United Nations to speak out. And that happened on end of September. But end of October, my father was killed at the police station. But that even more encouraged me, gave me even more strength or kind of mobilization to continue to fight. I'm proud of myself. You know, the, the China attacking on me, that attack means I am doing something right for my people. That's right. Wouldn't you receive phone calls while you're here in the United States from China threatening you? Yes, they did. They messaged me. They said, you should value the life that you are spending together with, with your children. We are around you. We are watching you. Yeah, that was direct message that I have received, threat message. And then I, and also even in here, some unknown people were taking picture of me. I didn't notice that, but my children did. It happened twice. Do you find yourself staying inside uh, or does this sort of threat not keep you down in that sense no i didn't scare off the threats because number one god is top of me god will help and also i trust that i feel that i am the resident of america 
And I trust America will protect me. How do you feel about the global lack of response to this? What kind of action do you really wish that world leaders would take to protect Uyghurs from further abuse? What I wish that the international community, relevant organizations, governments should do is they should do investigation, not just a kind of, you know, doing everything beforehand because China is very skillful in its staging and the deceiving others. So without any indication, if possible, send some kind of private investigators and then act on it. For those people who are still in these camps, if you could send them one message, what would you say to them? All I want to say to them is stay safe, stay alive. I bet you miss your home. I bet you miss the way it looks and the way it smells and the roads that you knew and the places you grew up and the rooms that housed you. I'd like to hear what you miss most from home, from life before all of this. The local food, it's called kumech. It's kind of food that you cook in tandoor or in um, open fire, you know, the wood fire. That food I really missed. Not only just the food, it's the environment, you know, how we sit together with the family, friends. That time, you know, that mood, that situation that, you know, you just to be with them together. I miss the most. I know that you have found a new love for the United States, that you feel welcome here, and I'm so glad you do. If, when this genocide were to end, would you want to go home? My children are growing up in here. Yeah, I leave the choice, decision to, for their um, sake, you know, whether they want to leave this their country, which is America. I think I follow that decision. I'm more inclined to live in this country, in this great country, America. America saved my life. I'm not going to betray America. Zumrat Dawood, Zubaira Shamsadan, thank you for talking with me. I wish to thank America and you, people like yourself, who are creating this opportunity for us to speak out on behalf of suffering people. Thank you. Through a series of interviews and testimony that Zumrat gave to the UN Human Rights Council, artist Famida Azim and journalist Anthony Del Col collaborated with her to create a stunning interpretation of her story, which in 2022 won a Pulitzer Prize for illustrated reporting. We'll have a link to it at ctpublic.org slash audacious. After the break, how a Uyghur poet processes the violence in his homeland. When surrender hides deep in the suitcase. When noble doubts run over the weight limit. When dead ends continue onward. When the exodus stalls at the second floor. What is it that keeps you from seeing I am still alive? Plus tangible things we can do to help. I'm Kion Wolf. 
This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. If you happen to have found yourself in Washington, D.C. over the past few years, sitting in the back of Tahir Isgel's Uber, you probably wouldn't have known that you were being driven around by one of the most celebrated Uyghur poets and filmmakers of our era. And you definitely wouldn't have known about the cruelty he experienced as the Chinese government ramped up the genocide of his people. But you'll read about it in his book, Waiting to be Arrested at Night, a Uyghur poet's memoir of China's genocide, which just came out. It was co-written with historian Joshua Freeman, who is also his interpreter for this interview. When the Chinese government ratcheted up their surveillance and detainment, for the first time, Tahir's poetry became a liability. So in one poem, he omitted the line, You can't imagine a homeland you haven't seen. And in another poem, My mother is no infidel was changed to My Mother Is Not Without Faith. I asked to hear how this amending of his poetry first began. Uh, for many years, uh, Uyghurs in general and Uyghur poets specifically have been under the very uh, careful surveillance of the government. And everybody knew that. But even in an environment like that, all of us continued writing poems and all of us continued doing our work. But in 2016, um, compared to what had come before, the situation became even more grave. The situation became uh, even more serious and uh, things began to change. At that point, I decided to publish my first poetry collection. And uh, because of these conditions, I had no choice but to uh, change various uh, words and phrases in poems that had already been published. What happened later uh, made clear that these measures were actually necessary. Uh, numerous Uyghur poets and writers were arrested and sentenced to long jail terms uh, on the basis of something that they had written. Of course, I had not the slightest desire to do this, uh, but simply because the situation demanded it, I was forced to change various words uh, when this collection was published. When you would get together with your friends who were poets, there was one line in the book where you talk about you were trying to be the kind of Uyghurs the government desired, but there really wasn't anything you could do to protect yourself. I'd like to hear about walking that line of trying to be utterly yourselves as creative people, but also trying to fit some sort of amorphous mold? Uh, of course, this is a, a serious question, serious problem um, for a poet, for someone engaged in creative work. The ability to express oneself uh, is, of course, of the utmost importance. But the Chinese government has... Uh, always had enormous sensitivity to matters of culture, art, literature. But arts and literature are inherently ambiguous. If the government wants to find a problem in them, it can. But it's also always been the case that the Chinese government takes care of things not according to the law, but according to temporary policies that it thinks up itself. This creates a still more dangerous situation. So for poets like us, um, 
walking the line between what the government demands and at the same time expressing our own feelings and thoughts uh, is like walking a tightrope. We try to lighten this burden for ourselves by uh, making fun of the situation, by joking amongst ourselves uh, with dark humor. And uh, that's one of the ways we deal with it. We know about how women have been abused, assaulted, imprisoned. You wrote a, a poem called The Women's Prison. I'd love to hear a reading of it. Ayalla turmisi. Küzünün rengi elişman idi. Bu rengle yolda kitvatkan bizden kiyimlerimizi yok etti. The women's prison. Autumn was a jumble of colors, staining our clothes as we walked the road. In the clay-bedded stream beside us, God's cold water was flowing. In the water swirled leaves with holes. We passed a wide bare enclosure. A red light on the gate was shining like Satan. Qasim John pointed, that's the women's prison. His friend Rozakhun grinned. I wouldn't mind being locked in a cell full of women. The body of the land was in pieces. The roads were stitching them together. Cold air was leading its kin down from the mountain. A sudden shiver went through me. Me too. I'd love to hear you talk about that piece. Uh, this poem was written in autumn 2015. Uh, when I was filming a um, TV series near my hometown, Kashgar. Uh, we were traveling to a village near the city of Kashgar, uh, and uh, near the road heading to this village was a labor camp uh, that I had been held in two decades earlier. As we drove along, uh, with my full attention, I was trying to uh, see if the camp was still there. Around the time that I saw this camp on the side of the road, on the other side of the street, I saw uh, this enclosure, and the people traveling with me in the car told me that that was a newly built women's prison. When I had been in that labor camp, uh, there had not been a women's prison there. So as we passed by, I looked closely at this women's prison, uh, it had high walls that were topped with barbed wire. I could see the buildings, but I couldn't see a single soul uh, within the prison. That day, uh, I wrote this poem, The Women's Prison. In 2017, you fled to the United States. Will you talk about that experience and what role poetry played in it? The times before we left our homeland were exceedingly difficult times for my family and me. In difficult moments like that, uh, poetry does not come to my mind. And with uh, people being arrested left and right, with friends of mine disappearing, I had no thought of poetry. Uh, I couldn't imagine poetry. As the plane lifted off, what was going through your mind? On the one hand, I was deeply excited to be with my family escaping this extremely dangerous situation. Um, but on the other hand, I was devastated to be leaving my homeland. At that point, we had abandoned all hope of being able to return. Even now, we can't imagine returning. 
our feelings were really complicated. At the end, um, at the end of the book, waiting to be arrested at night, uh, there was a dream that you had, which inspired the final poem in the book called What Is It? And so I'd like to hear about the dream. And then I'd love to hear your reading of the poem. Uh, when we first came to America, practically every night, um, we would have uh, nightmares. And I heard from other Uyghurs um, uh, who left our homeland around the same time, or even who left our homeland earlier, uh, that they sometimes had similar dreams. These were dreams of being chased by the Chinese police, uh, dreams of our passports being confiscated, dreams of being unable to leave, dreams of being locked up in prison. One thing often repeated in those dreams would be our close ones, um, our friends and uh, our relatives abandoning us, um, turning away. I had a dream where four or five of my closest friends in Arumchi were standing around me as if they were mourning my corpse and I could see they thought I had died. But when I wanted to express to them that I hadn't died, um, I found myself unable to speak. I found myself unable to move. And it was in that painful moment that I woke up. This dream was so vivid. Uh, and for days, um, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Even now, as I'm describing it to you, it's so vivid in my mind. It was after this that I wrote the poem, What Is It? Um, which was the first poem I wrote after coming to the United States. Uh, and although this dream um, was the inspiration for the poem, the poem also relates our experience of leaving one home in Arumchi and coming to this new home in America. I'd love to hear a reading of it. What is it? What is it? From far away from behind the domed water that stayed with me, that came along with me. A weak vow written in the yellowing fog, audacity standing at an angle, or the layered dimness passed from hand to hand. These days are crowded with shattered horizons, shattered in the runaway season, when surrender hides deep in the suitcase, when noble doubts run over the weight limit, when dead ends continue onward, when the exodus stalls at the second floor, what is it that keeps you from seeing I am still alive? So simple are my inner soul and outer face, O dark-eyed one. The tree that reddens from within turns to stone beside me. A spray of sweet-smelling camel grass grows quickly, blooms open at the doorstep of the past. Thank you. Your book, Waiting to be Arrested at Night, A Uyghur Poet's Memoir of China's Genocide, just came out. How do you feel about all the love and work that went into this memoir? And what do you hope that people reading it do or feel? after they finished reading it. Of course, I'd originally had no thought of writing a memoir like this, um, but 
the situation demanded it. Um, I wanted to let the world know what my family had been through. And so this memoir came to be written. It was a, a process of two years. Um, two years of, of work went into this memoir. Uh, and aside from my own work on it, of course, um, my translator and my editors um, also put a lot of work into it. When we were first discussing this book, uh, my publisher asked me uh, what my hopes were for the book. And I said then, and I feel now that I hope that as many people as possible uh, will, by reading it, um, learn about the situation, learn about everything that's happened. And finally, I would want to say that I would never have wanted a tragedy like this to happen. I would never have wanted to have to write a book like this. But that is what the situation is. And for that reason, I have really complicated feelings about this book coming out. Well, Tahir Ezgil and Joshua Freeman, thank you so very much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We'll have a link to Tahir's book, Waiting to be Arrested at Night, a Uyghur poet's memoir of China's genocide, at ctpublic.org slash audacious. Now, let's reconnect with Julie Millsap. She's the government relations manager at Uyghur Human Rights Project. I wanted her to tell me what she wishes we as Americans would keep in mind as we hear these stories. I think to Americans in particular, I would say, just because it is something that you have not personally experienced as an American does not mean it's not happening. It's difficult for people to imagine that something so brutal could be unfolding in the modern age, but it's reality. What ideally would be done about this? So here we are talking about this issue. I'm so glad people are going to hear your voice and the other the other voices on the show. And, you know, they're going to turn the radio off and wait, wait, don't tell me he's going to come on or whatever's next on their podcast feed. And, you know, like now what? What what can I possibly do? What what can I possibly do? And what can my government possibly do? Well, I think, you know, as Americans, we have a couple of things that we have options to do. So one being that we do have access to our elected officials. This is an enormous gift that most people in the world are would love to have. And we have it. And so um, as opposed to other political issues that tend to be bottom up issues, grassroots up, we have a grassroots movement that begins. And then from the bottom up, we put pressure on our elected officials. This issue is actually opposite. We've been a top down issue. So elected officials in the United States, at least in D.C., there is true bipartisan agreement on the Uyghur issue, I can say, um, working in this space. That is one of the very few issues in Washington, D.C., where we can say there is genuine bipartisanship here in D.C. on. Policymakers have been confronted with the information that they need to understand that this is horrific and absolutely there's no room for disagreement. With that, we haven't had a strong grassroots. And so what we need right now is for Americans as consumers to reach out to corporations and to their officials and say, as Americans, the fact that something so horrific is happening in the modern age means that we want to be sure that we have no part of it, which means ensuring that your retirement, if your government employee is not going to um, paramilitary organizations, unfortunately, that is truth, um, that your retirement savings are not being invested inappropriately. Um, that you as a consumer are not consuming products that are being produced with modern day slavery 
And if you want more information on that, you can um, visit the website for the um, End Uyghur Forced Labor Coalition. And um, I would also refer to a report put out by the the Australian Strategic Policy Institute a few years ago called Uyghurs for Sale, which is a good starting point to browse um, those brands that we consume here in the United States that are complicit in using Uyghur slave labor. With the passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, we do have the legislation now uh, that companies should be <laughs> extricating themselves from these situations, but reality is a little bit more complicated than that, and implementation is not smooth because corporations will seek any opportunity to kind of um, uh, get around that. So as consumers, we need your voice to tell these companies, I want no piece of goods that are produced by modern day slaves. And that's uh, these are a couple of things you can do. So start looking at where your money is going and in what ways it's tied to that. Um, another reference I would make is to the Athena Institute and the work that they're doing with campus divestment. People can also refer to our website, um, uhrp.org for the Uyghur Human Rights Project. And, you know, look for ways to support Uyghur organizations. That's another thing you can do. People are working with very um, limited bandwidth, very limited staff to take on an authoritarian regime. And um, that's a pretty mismatched struggle. So explore the website, see what you can do to help. Well, Julie Millsap, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. And thanks so much for spotlighting this issue. It, it's a continual encouragement to us to, to get those requests. We'll have a link to the Uyghur Human Rights Project at ctpublic.org audacious. Special thanks to Khalil Rahman for his extraordinary and thorough work producing this episode of Audacious. Production help also came from Jessica Severin Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. And thank you so much to our interns, Carol Chen and Stacey Addo. If this episode spoke to you, scroll through our podcast feed and find the one we did about the beauty, pain, and poetry of being part of a diaspora. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org slash audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your thoughts. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram at Kion Wolf, or you can send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>